Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. This talk comes from the ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Welcome, everybody. Can can everybody hear me? Yes. I think um, Will stolen all of the microphones for tonight. I, I've got, got about 25 on me at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands that we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people uh, past and present. Um, welcome to the CAS, second CAS inaugural professorial lecture. Um, tonight we have the privilege of, this afternoon, we have the privilege of listening to um, Will Christie. I'd like to welcome Paul Pickering, um, who is going to introduce Will for us this evening. Thanks, Anna. It's a great pleasure to be here. At the moment, I'm the Dean of the College of Arts and Social Sciences, and my real job is as a uh, Director of the Research School of Humanities and the Arts. And my real love is having been a former fellow of the Humanities Research Centre. So for all sorts of reasons, it's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to welcome you to this uh, lecture and also to introduce the head of the HRC, Professor Will Christie. Some of you will know that we've been trying to get Will to the ANU for quite some time. and. Um, Thanks to Professor Travis and others, and thanks to Ian Young, um, we were able to convince Will to join us a couple of years ago uh, from Sydney. And um, Sydney are not all that happy about that, but um, their loss is certainly our gain. Um, I don't really want to spend too much time um, that is really belongs to Will. And I certainly don't want to spend time going through his CV, which is uh, very extensive. The author of uh, numerous important prize-winning books, fellow of the Academy, um, distinguished career, uh, a long list of areas of expertise. And it actually intrigued me. It's got British and Irish literature 200503. Other literatures in English 200508. And it took me a while to realise that what we're doing now is putting our ARC codes <laughs> on it our was, bios. On the wasn't my choice. <laughs> it was not my choice, I can assure you. No, well, I don't know about that because you used to run the ERA submission at Sydney, so I wondered about yeah. that. Um, the last on the list of uh, Will's research interests is Dylan Thomas, which actually brings to mind for me a, a, an interesting side story. Um, I was at a party recently, a birthday party, and uh, a corporate banker said to me, he said, oh, you're at the ANU. And I said, yeah. He said, what are you in? I said, oh, arts and social sciences. And I said, oh, yeah, so um, do you know Will Christie? And I said, yes, yes, I do. I'm the dean of the college. And he said, so you're Will Christie's boss. So I said, well, I suppose I am. <laughs> I said, so how do you, and I actually knew the story already. I said, so how do you know Will Christie? And he told me this wonderful story about the Gail Kelly's office at Westpac wanted to have uh, some Brown. bonding Michael work Brown. going yeah. on, and um, yeah. they decided that they'd uh, exercise their joy in, 
English literature. So they phoned up Sydney University and said, who can we talk to about that? And they got on to Will, who then proceeded to not only work with them, but I think uh, coach them and write a play for them called Under Mulgawood, <laughs> which is a somewhat uh, vernacular adaption, I think, of a play by someone else. Um, and I'm told by some of the cast, one of whom is uh, uh, related to me, that they had an absolute ball. And it's, it's great to think that people um, in the humanities, in the academy, have got the not only interest in the commitment, but also the good sense to get out and work in the corporate world and uh, to allow people who uh, don't get enough opportunity, I suspect, to work in the area of the humanities to indulge and remember the, uh, the love that they have of that. So I've said enough. Um, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome Will. Please join me in welcoming him. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Anne, for, for the invitation. And thank you for giving up your afternoon. Uh, it's less than two years. It's actually only just over a year. So the idea of an inaugural lecture isn't quite as odd as it might otherwise seem. But already, as I look around the room, I, uh, I'm aware of a number of, of really good friends. It's gratifying to see the people that I've already got to know. Thank you for coming. And we'll start with Percy Bysshe Shelley. Where else to start? I weep for Adonais. He is dead. Oh, weep for Adonais, though our tears thaw not the frost which binds so dear a head. And thou sad hour selected from all years to mourn our loss, rouse thy obscure compeers. And teach them thine own sorrow. Say, with me died Adonais. Till the future dares forget the past, his fate and fame shall be an echo and a light unto eternity. Percy Bysshe Shelley's rhapsodic pastoral elegy for John Keats, Adonais, was also an historical elegy for poetry itself and a eulogy for fellow poets, real and imagined. Perhaps the only thing that all the writers of the Romantic period had in common was a marked anxiety about their audience, about how they were received by their contemporaries in the first instance, and then how or whether they would be read uh, by future readers. It related to a more generalised anxiety about the status and function of poetry, in what the satirist Thomas Love Peacock, in his Four Ages of Poetry, called an Iron Age when intellectual power, and I'm quoting Peacock, when intellectual power and intellectual acquisition have turned themselves into other and better channels. Poetry in Peacock's provocative and only partly comic characterization is historically redundant, a hangover from when society thought as a child. The technologico-scientific future glimpsed in the early signs of an industrial revolution, the claims of common sense and logic, and the increasing prevalence of market forces would have no place for poetry. This anxiety of reception, to use Lucy Newland's phrase, 
explains why so much romantic and post-romantic poetry, like Adonais, is written about poetry itself. Beset by doubts about its own visionary and interpretative powers, while yearning to establish a unique epistemology and authority. Now, this tense relationship between poet and audience in the early 19th century is manifest in one of the most resilient of the Romantic myths, of which Shelley's Adonais is an exalted, a rhapsodic expression. It's the myth of the vulnerable poetic sensibility damaged or destroyed by an indifferent if not openly hostile world. Envy and calumny and hate and pain, to quote Adonais. Envy and calumny and hate and pain. The, the sort of classic iconographic image is, of course, the death of Chatterton, the 17-year-old 18th century poet, celebrated here in a mid 19th century painting. The syncretic myth of sacrifice that Shelley creates in Adonais derives partly from classical mythology, where the beautiful effeminate youths, Adonis, Narcissus, and Hyacinthus, all die young, to be resurrected annually as the flowers associated with their names, and partly from the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ whose nurturing of futurity with his blood Shelley associates in the poem with pagan fertility rituals. Shelley's poet is despised and rejected of men, in the words of Isaiah, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. From 1802, at the centre and representative of this hostile world, we find the figure of the critical reviewer. The occasion in fact and feeling of Shelley's lyrical mythologizing. Both romantic and later Victorian readers were led to believe that Keats had died at Rome of the quarterly review, to quote Byron. <laughs> had died at Rome of the quarterly review and that he was, as Byron also announced, snuffed out by an article. Byron was actually having a go at Shelley in that and not Keats. It was commonly believed, in other words, that a hypersensitive Keats had died as a result of a hemorrhage brought on by his vicious treatment at the hands of the critical establishment. The genius of the lamented person to whose memory I have dedicated these unworthy verses was not less delicate and fragile than it was beautiful. And where canker worms abound, what wonder if its young flower was blighted in the bud? The savage criticism on his endymion, which appeared in the Quarterly Review, produced the most violent effect on his susceptible mind. The agitation thus originated ended in the rupture of a blood vessel in the lungs and a rapid consumption took over the death of Keats. Now, as so often, this story turns out to be a myth in both senses of the word. A myth in both senses, which is to say it's a fabrication. No less than it's a powerful story that expresses a collective anxiety. And it does that. Far from being naturally ethereal and retiring, John Keats, before contracting tuberculosis, was athletic, edgy, and prone to belligerence. 
but the attack on Keats in the periodicals was real. Before being taken over by John Wilson Croker in the Quarterly Review, the attack had been launched in Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine by the Scottish critic and cultural commentator John Gibson Lockhart. It is with such sorrow, he says sarcastically, that we have contemplated the case of Mr John Keats. The frenzy of the poems was bad enough in its way, but it did not alarm us half so seriously as the calm, settled, imperturbable, drivelling idiocy of Endymion. One day, someone was going to say about something that I've written. <laughs> I live in fear. <laughs> it's a wonder we publish at all, isn't it? <laughs> drivelling idiocy. There you go. These were part of a series of articles against what they called, of course, the Cockney School. The Cockney School. Okay, politically and socially inspired Lockhart's and later Croker's attacks focused on what they saw as Keats's lower middle class vulgarity and cultural illiteracy. This was the poet who used L'Empereur's classical dictionary in order to bone up on classical mythology. Attacking persons as much as principles, writes John Clancher, the reviewers and critics of Romantic Britain positioned one another as often according to their social habitus as to their critical postures. Class and gender associations became means of crediting or discrediting a bewildering, ver bewilderingly various array of critical positions. And you can only imagine what they did with female authors. If many of the periodic enlightenment's critical judgments strike the modern reader as cruel, irrelevant, and critically inept as they inevitably must, they were nonetheless typical. Typical of innumerable slashing reviews throughout the early 19th century. Lockhart and Croker were imitating, often exaggerating, a style of literary criticism developed in 1802 by the first of the big romantic periodical reviews. This is the review on which I've spent a good deal of my career. <laughs> the Edinburgh Review. It's a style that's best exemplified by that of the Edinburgh's editor, Francis Jeffrey. In his infamous reviews of William Wordsworth, Walter Scott, Joanna Bailey, John Thelwell, Thomas More, and many, many others over the first decades of the early 19th century. The Edinburgh reviewers must be allowed the merit of having founded a new school destined to be the model for the critics of the 19th century. And model is what they were. The advent of the Edinburgh saw the advent of what Kim Wheatley has identified as the recurring themes of 19th century comments on the periodical press. And I quote, their relentless politicisation of discourse, their reliance on and abuse of anonymity, their indulgence in so-called personality or personal attacks, and last but not least, their sway over public opinion. The cultural sway exercised by the big reviews, by the Edinburgh and the Quarterly in the first instance, 
but also by a whole host. In fact, over the course of the Romantic period, there were approximately 4,000 different periodicals started up. This is a very small selection, but all of these can be found at different times to be offering what they called slashing reviews. Slashing reviews. The cultural sway confirmed not only the extent to which Britain had become a culture of print, but also the extent to which that print culture had become a social and political battlefield. With the Napoleonic Wars raging throughout Europe, the imagery of war and combat dominated and informed the obsessive self-characterization of early 19th century literary culture. A war, to quote Mark Schoenfield, fought over economics and information, over political and aesthetic norms, over the control of public opinion and the boundary between the public and the private. The dominance of the reviews is not surprising. If we think of the publishing revolution that had taken place in the 18th century, when booksellers had been obliged for various commercial and copyright reasons to advertise and promote their books more vigorously. But however exigent the commercial pressures behind the establishment and development of reviews, their centrality and their influence was never limited to promoting specific books as commercial objects. From the beginning, they were also engaged in the culture of ideas and ideologies, reflecting and fueling political and cultural antagonisms that would become more open and divisive after the French Revolution. And it was to realise both the intellectual and the political potential of book reviewing that the Edinburgh Review or Note Critical Journal was launched in October 1802. Largely maintained by a distinct and marked set of energetic and talented, but at the time politically disfranchised, young Scottish Whig lawyers. Though the, the review's only begetter, as it happens, was Sidney Smith, who was neither a Scot nor a lawyer, the Reverend Sidney Smith. Uh, of whom I hope many of you will know, and if you don't, you should. He's one of the funniest men. Thanks to some clever, aggressive and argumentative reviews, the Edinburgh erupted into the intellectual life of early 19th century Britain. And before the end of its first year, Francis Geoffrey had been installed as editor. Indeed, he'd been editor from the beginning, as I've argued elsewhere. Over the first seven years of its publication, however, it also became more recognisably reformist and oppositional, if not radical, certainly for the defensive Tories, for whom it was, at times, Jacobinical. And those who know the period will know that that's roughly equivalent to commie. To this we owe the origin of the Edinburgh's main rival, the pro-ministerial quarterly review, a brainchild of a handful of Tory writers and intellectuals, including the poet and novelist Walter Scott. Scott had been reviewing for the Edinburgh Review uh, and felt compromised by its politics and rather insulted by Geoffrey's reviews of his own poetry. So he abandoned the Edinburgh Review to set up the Quarterly Review in 1809. Co-conspirators on the Quarterly Review included second generation Scott, who would become the Quarterly's publisher, John Murray, as well as the leader of the Liberal Conservatives, 
faction of the Tory party, George Canning. The Edinburgh and the Quarterly then dominated the period. Not just its book reviewing, but also its thinking. It was the changes to reviewing practice introduced by the Edinburgh and adopted by the Quarterly that enabled the two reviews to become such discursive forces throughout the whole and especially the first three decades of the 19th century. There was, for one thing, their selectivity. The older monthly review and the critical review had tried to discuss or at least to register everything. The Edinburgh Review chose only to select what it would review. In doing so, it went quarterly. Going quarterly for the first time gave it a totally different approach to uh, what was available uh, in print at the time. Paradoxically, it became more representative by being less representative. Only, of course, the choice was theirs. And the Edinburgh paid well. Exceptionally well, a fact that very soon became public knowledge. Archibald Constable offered in the first instance 10 guineas a sheet for 16 printed pages, raising it to uh, five years later to 15, and in 1812 to 25 guineas a sheet. As its editor, Geoffrey was able to offer individual reviewers as much as he chose, and he would discriminate. They also negotiated in 1812 with Longman and Constable that the original the original collaborators would get a percentage of all the profits. What that meant was that by about 1816, Jeffrey could make as much as, in equivalent in our terms, $300,000 a year by editing the review and writing for it. Henry Broom was paid for one article of 40 pages, the same that Jane Austen received for the copyright of Pride and Prejudice. He got 106 pounds, she got 110. And as every Austen scholar knows, that was her most commercially successful. It was huge money. Geoffrey was getting 300,000, the equivalent of 300,000 a year as an editor. He was also Edinburgh's leading advocate or barrister. And he was paid accordingly. So he was getting a, a huge amount of money. I say this because it was a part of the myth of periodical reviewing in the periodical enlightenment that I'm talking about. It was a vital part of the shift. And what it enabled, of course, was a shift of status. A shift of status in the idea of the reviewer itself. They're the dividends. Even Tsar Peter, working in the trenches, must accept the pay of a common soldier, says Walter Scott. In other words, everybody was forced to accept the money. We have to think about the implications of this. It didn't, Byron, of course, if you know anything about the period, would not accept money for his publications because he was an aristocrat and it was demeaning to do so. Though occasionally he relented. <laughs> uh, these people insisted that everybody accept the pay that they were given. And it was only under those conditions that they would all operate. So that it would be, in that sense, 
a kind of equality operating, and no one would, would feel besmirched by the exercise, as Geoffrey originally did when it was suggested to him, because it was dangerously close to being a trade. And the only way to get around that was to turn it into a profession. And to do that, you paid lots of money. And that's what happened. That's what happened. And this was matched by the quarterly review. And this bounty, as I say, became part of the aura of reviewing during the periodical enlightenment, integral to the reception of these reviews. Payment was not only generous, it was compulsory, and it enforced an equality. Book reviews, moreover, gradually expanded in length. In 1802, the Edinburgh Review published 29 reviews in its first issue. In 1829, when Geoffrey resigned the editorship, the same number of pages held nine reviews. Each one, uh, each one running to sometimes 30, 40, even 50, and in the hands of a Thomas Babington Macaulay, 110 pages. Irrepressible. They became mini theses in their own right. And this did, in fact, affect the genre, obviously. They didn't just become longer. Their priorities changed in the course of these 27 years. The reviewer and his ideas on the topic in question took more and more precedence over the publication under review. It often became merely an occasion, or as Hazlitt would say, a stalking horse for the particular reflections of the reviewer himself. And in the Edinburgh and the Quarterly, it was almost invariably himself. But the review becomes a sustained, argumentative account of some idea, some event, considered by the reviewer to be of cultural significance. It's not just that the big reviews had barely concealed political priorities, Geoffrey famously said that his right leg was politics. It was more than that. From the opening article of Francis Geoffrey's on the French Revolution and its causes in 1802, in spite of all the radical differences in length, the book review was striving to become a distinct and independent cultural form. Whatever we might think of the critical judgment of the reviewing profession, we need to look on the review or the review article, as William Hazlitt did, as an end in itself, in a classic Hazlittian phrase. Periodical criticism is favourable to periodical criticism. It serves no one else but itself. And it serves itself and its own improvement. We will content ourselves with announcing a truism, he says. Its contributors to its own improvement and its cultivation proves not only that it suits the spirit of the times, which indeed it did, but advances it. It certainly never flourished more than at present. It never stuck its roots so deep nor spread its branches so widely and luxuriantly. Now, we're not directly concerned with patrolling the borders of the Republic of Letters. The review article saw its responsibility as one of offering an intellectual and historical context for the work under review. What this often meant was simply showing off. Discussion of the text under review often had to wait until 
There were generalizations and an openly argumentative, often unapologetically didactic introduction. Sometimes the book never gets a look in. <laughs> Henry Broom has reviewed a book, announced that he's reviewing it, and never mentioned it in the course of the entire article. So, he establishes his own claims, says Hazlitt, in an elaborate inaugural dissertation on every knowable thing and a few other things besides, before he deigns to bring forward the pretensions of the original candidate for praise. Drawing on its heritage in the Scottish Enlightenment, the Edinburgh popularised an integrated cultural commentary in which history and politics were primary concerns. I've written at length of the way in which the scepticism and historical materialism of the Edinburgh Review anticipates the cultural materialism of our own age, specifically of the new historicist movement in literature. Glimpsing beneath what George Steiner calls the seemingly autonomous life of artistic forms, the practical workings of historical circumstance. And indeed, there are few generalizations in, amongst contemporary uh, critical accounts of the Romantic period that were not anticipated by the period itself. There's very little of what we're saying in scholarship about the early 19th century that the early 19th century does not anticipate in some form or other. Public written representations of society and social relations, as Judith Newton has written, offered a sense of control over time and change, extending to those who could interpret the flux a kind of superior cultural authority. And like Newton, John Clancher identifies a new kind of cultural semiotic competence in the generalizing interpretative method of the periodical enlightenment. Their responsibility was to read the signs as they saw it. The high status of reviews was bound up with their self-elected cultural function as the observers and interpreters of historical signs. To represent an historical state of affairs, as James Chandler has observed, is to begin to transform it, to state the case of the nation, and to do so in such a way as to alter that case. The Edinburgh Review took every available opportunity presented by contemporary publication, and sometimes no pamphlet was too slight or insignificant if it was a good excuse to rail, to state the case of the nation, and to try and alter that case. Another change introduced by the Edinburgh was a policy of editorial finering. Walter Scott's word, finering, a very Walter Scott word. One very successful expedient of the Edinburgh editor on which his popularity has in some measure risen is the art of giving life and interest even to the duller articles of his review. Basically, to summarise, nothing that Geoffrey received passed through without some changes. 
Sometimes he would get rid of 10 pages and insert 10 pages of his own. <laughs> Sometimes he would just modify it in the interests of copy editing, but always he would change it to ensure that it reflected what he took to be the important values of the Edinburgh Review itself. There are some classic exasperated letters written to Francis Jeffrey protesting about the way in which he has altered things. And he invariably came back to say, I always said it had to satisfy the needs of the Edinburgh Review. And the final innovation attributable to the Edinburgh Review and adopted by reviewing generally was the critical severity with which I began this lecture. A severity threatened in the motto of the Edinburgh Review. Judex damnator cum nocens absolviter. The judge stands condemned when the guilty are acquitted. The, uh, the motto down here, by the way, was Sidney Smith's suggestion for all his Scottish colleagues. We cultivate literature on a little oatmeal. As you know, of course, uh, uh, the Scots uh, and horses eat oatmeal. Um, they chose the former, <laughs> not surprisingly. Right. A legacy of the legal background shared by the, so many of the Edinburgh's reviewers. This is a very typical statement that you get in the reviews themselves. Putting ourselves thus upon our country, we certainly look for a verdict against this publication and have little doubt indeed of the result upon a fair consideration of the evidence contained in these volumes. Stressing the ethical and social accountability of the, uh, the author, her or himself. And against the background of a burgeoning reading public, as Neil Berry has remarked, reviewers in the early 19th century discovered a new power to terrorise authors. And we are back with the death of John Keats. Preemptive appeals to reviewers for clemency, complaints about their severity, their malevolence, were not new. It wasn't the first time a writer had complained about her or his reception. But with the Edinburgh, misrepresentation and severity become especially willful and especially skillful. Politically calculating and sometimes vicious and inexcusable. A letter from Sidney Smith to James Mackintosh, not Keynes, but James, to James Mackintosh, 3rd of January, 1803, before they started the Edinburgh Review. It's one of my favourite quotations. Uh, the, um, if, any member, sorry, if any of the members of the King of Clubs have a mind to barbecue a poet or two, or strangle a metaphysician, or do any other act of cruelty to the dull men of the earth, we are in hopes they will make our journal the receptacle of their exploits. Accordingly, John Thelwell received a celebrated measure of Geoffrey's patrician scorn, his snobbery, which drove Thelwell publicly to defend himself in an acute analysis of the rhetoric initiated by the Edinburgh Review. Geoffrey's review of Thomas More or of his epistles, odes and other poems provoked an equally celebrated mock heroic duel between the two men. 
and famously reconciled them and they became best friends. Indeed, throughout his life, Geoffrey was becoming best friends with the people he had provoked. He made a habit of it. The only person he couldn't make a friend of was William Wordsworth. Henry Broom's savaging of Lord Byron's hours of idleness led at first to despair and then to English bards and Scotch reviewers, in which Byron manages to inhabit both the antithetical worlds that are conjured uh, in this spontaneous, uh, <coughs> sorry, in this <coughs> spontaneous creative world of English poetry and the cold analytical world of Scottish criticism. I'll come back to that at the end. Thomas Clarkson, the abolitionist, was also the butt of Geoffrey's mockery, and Joanna Bailey, Walter Scott, the antiquarian and Shakespeare scholar Francis Deuce seems never to have recovered from the treatment that he received. And most notorious of all, of course, is the one I mentioned before, Geoffrey's hounding Wordsworth for 20 years, unrelentingly. In spite of a resolution to avoid similar excesses, the conduct of the Quarterly Review, once it came on board, only confirmed critical severity as a cultural habit. And it was not long before, along with Keats, the Shelleys, Hunt, Hazlitt, Walter Savage Lander, Sidney Owenson, were all falling foul of a comparably paranoid politics. And these are only some of the better known, more lurid cases to be found in the history and mythology of the big reviews. Geoffrey Croker and Hazlitt may not have slain with a review, writes Marilyn Butler, but it is not surprising that contemporaries thought them capable of it. Capable, in other words, of slaughtering John Keats. Pacific-minded reviewers were fond of justifying their harshness of their criticism by citing the threat posed to society by bad taste and antisocial thinking. The rhetorical strategy in what they called slashing reviews was indeed a kind of affected or exaggerated lack of sympathy, an unwillingness to suspend their disbelief. And this was particularly true of the critical attitude towards the new romantic poetics. The refusal even to try and understand manifest as indignation or outrage is a technique characteristic not of objective criticism, but of political oratory and of satire. The review as a satirico-forensic exercise. Time and again, a poet will be criticised for failing to satisfy some essentially conservative demands of the satirist. The more wholesomely derisive, iconoclastic, the more aggressive the reviewing, the more it belongs in the genre of satire. But if critical reviewing was satirical, it was not satire, just as it was not book reviewing. Instead, as we have seen, it has its own cultural and political and arguably aesthetic work to do. All these changes that I've been talking about in today's lecture, all these changes, 
the selectivity, the enrichment, the Olympian historicity, the editorial veneering, the critical severity, encouraged a rhetorical attitude of superior cultural authority, to quote Judith Newton. An attitude that had an impact on writers no longer enjoying formal patronage and dependent for their livelihood on the sale of their works. And thus, it had an impact on romantic writing itself. The uneasy relationship that already subsisted between the reviewer and the commercial author in the late 18th century, dating back to when they were born and raised together by a rapidly expanding book trade, reached a state of sustained critical tension during the periodical Enlightenment. With the reviewers often identifying with their readers as consumers, conspiring with their readers against what they saw as the pretensions of authorship. Again and again, it's hardly surprising to find a tendency amongst romantic writers, and you can find this kind of thing in all of romantic writing, to dismiss audiences as either mindlessly passive or voraciously appetitive, to demonise reviewers as an army of talentless upstarts, concealing their various envies behind the shield of collective anonymity. I'm quoting Lucy Newland. Jeffrey's reviews of Wordsworth, Lockhart's and Crocker's of Keats affected the poets financially. It retarded their literary reputations. Classic retaliatory documents from the period, besides Shelley's Adonais, would include, along with a host of now forgotten pamphlets, Byron's English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, Coleridge's Biographia, Literaria, Wordsworth's preface to his poems 1815 and the supplementary essay, and indeed Thomas Carlyle's characteristics. Nay, is not the diseased, self-conscious state of literature disclosed in this one fact which lies so near, sorry, so near us here, the prevalence of reviewing for Carlyle it was the disease of the age. He wrote this in the Edinburgh Review. It was the only way Carlyle could make money. Far be it from us to disparage our own craft, he says, whereby we have our living. Only we must note these things, that reviewing spreads with strange vigour, that such a man as Byron reckons the reviewer and the poet equal, the subtitle of the book I wrote on the Edinburgh Review is Mammoth and Megalonics, because Byron saw the reviewer and the reviewee, he said, as a mammoth and a megalonics, staring at each other across the table, both of them out of date. Hmm? <clears throat> uh, and that at Leipzig Fair there was advertised a review of reviews. In fact, the uh, the anti-Jacobin review had had a review of reviews from the very beginning. They were reviewing each other as much as they were reviewing the literature of the period throughout the time. Thus does literature also, like a sick thing, superabundantly listen to itself, so Carlyle and so wonderfully naughty and so right in many ways. He saw reviewing as the symptom of a hopelessly self-conscious literary culture. Unable, as it were, to unshackle itself from its rather narcissistic uh, obsession 
with its own, uh, its own production. Okay. Now, the often antagonistic attitude adopted by the 19th century reviews towards writers and towards writing, while it helped to precipitate resilient romantic myths like that of the vulnerability of genius, it also played a crucial role in reinforcing the self-consciousness of creative writers. And indeed, as Coleridge's biographia makes abundantly clear, it was the rapid development of competitive commercial publishing and the proliferation of commercially viable publications like periodicals that helped to precipitate the romantic redefinition and valorization of literature as a uniquely imaginative form. It forced a revision of an understanding of what literature is. Creative genius becomes, by definition, that which is bound to escape or transcend the recognition of a critical reviewer. We know it's good, he missed it completely. Using the act of writing down his own considered response. Is this fair? Is this fair? Is it fair that Coleridge compares reviewers with eunuchs, self-elected to superintend the creative activity of the harem? Certainly, Geoffrey himself reviewed creative literature solely as a critic and a consumer, not as a fellow poet, not as a fellow creative writer, as we would say. Geoffrey's practical experience as a literary critic was, on the other hand, immense. His reading of classical, of French literature, and all of English literature was extensive. As a young man in the 1790s, he wrote thousands of pages because every time he read something, he would write a review of it. He operated from the very beginning to respond and to get his responses on paper. And in this one sense, at least, the line from the professional literary reviewer of the periodical Enlightenment to the modern literary critic working in a university department, to me and to many of you, is a direct one. Neither of us needs to be a creative artist in order to assume critical authority. But we do. One result of this is that we have inherited from the Romantic period what I referred to earlier as a state of sustained critical tension between the creative writer and the professional critic. A tension captured in Byron's title, English Baths and Scotch Reviewers. The English artist in Byron's conflicted imagination struggles to conceive and quicken, is on the side of life. The Scottish critical reviewer murders to dissect. Murders to dissect, in Wordsworth's famous phrase. Scottishness, as Stephen Cheek remarks, is represented as hardened to reality, unpoetical. It became nationalistic in the period. Now, it's very hard to get people to talk about that. 
deaf and blind to the greatness of mind and soul is the assumption. So today, the professional critic and the professional writer, each still dependent on the other, yet both keen to get on with their own work, look upon each other with mutual suspicion. Still. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.